good evening. I'm going to pray as we get started. Let me, let me give you a couple of things orientation-wise. First, uh, if, you're a, if you're a visitor, welcome. My name's Chad Vegas. I'm the lead pastor at Sovereign Grace, and um, this isn't a whole worship service like we would have on a Sunday morning. This is just an evening um, seminar series that's going through the summer, and so it's pretty stripped down. I'm actually going to be up here teaching. We'll do some Q&A. I'll pray at the beginning, at the end, and that's, that's pretty much the format. But I wanted to orient you to a couple of things just as I begin uh, before I pray to get us started. One is that um, we have a schedule for you that kind of gives the layout of, of what the class series will look like. So we have a schedule that gives you the layout. The layout, so you know, it's, it's, it's every Sunday evening at 6 p.m. And the first two weeks are foundational. And so you see on there the goal of gospel-centered marriage and parenting, the, the means of gospel-centered marriage and parenting, and you say, what if I'm single? I thought you were talking about singleness as well. We are. But we are talking about singleness with, the, with, with two assumptions in mind, either assumption number one, you may want to get married, and so you need to understand what gospel-centered marriage looks like and how you pursue that, or two, you don't want to get married, but you have lots of friends in the body of Christ who are married, and you want to be of help to them. You want to be encouragement to them. So, so, uh, and three, you're single and marriage is an idol for you, an idol of your heart. You desire it too much. And so we want to help put that idol to death. All right. So if you're single, that's, that's essentially how these benefit, you know, the first two are foundational for everybody. And then if you see the next five cover specifically marriage, marriage as it applies to both marrieds and singles who are potentially in the pursuit of it. And if you're sitting up at the top, you won't be able to see your Bibles because the lights won't come on up there. So we, we intentionally didn't turn them on up there um, just because we knew we weren't going to have a huge crowd tonight. Um, as well, from the, the second set, you see that we then, from July 29th forward, we come forward and deal with parenting really over five sessions. The reason we did that is because we knew there were people who were coming mostly for the marriage part, and we knew there were people who were also coming for the parenting part. And and um, if, if you want to excuse yourself for one of those parts, we totally get it. Um, although I would tell you that if you, are, if you are married or on the verge of being married, you probably would, li- would need to come to the parenting stuff just to get yourself prepared because there's something funny that happens when you get married, you know, and children come, right? Okay, so you guys follow me. Um, often, not always. We will also deal, some of you have said, well, will the parenting be helpful to me? We will also deal, especially in Q&A, but even in some application with issues of what if my kids are already grown up? How do I deal with teenagers? What if they're grown up? And so that stuff will happen. But so you understand the main focus of the whole thing is on how the gospel applies to these things, not how the law applies to these things. And I'll get into that in a minute. But let me start with prayer and we'll get going. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to get into your word together tonight to talk about marriage and parenting and singleness and what it is that you're at work among us doing and father how the gospel really applies to those things and what gospel centrality looks like in the midst of our lives with with really some of the most important relationships and those foundational relationships that we have that you've ordained and so father we pray um, that we would be faithful tonight in clear thinking and honor you that questions would come readily and answers would be helpful. And we thank you for this evening, the opportunity to worship you. We know it's only because of your son that we can. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Um, one of the things I want to mention also as a matter of housekeeping, if you want to order, there's two books we recommend. Um, if you want to order them, you can let Karen Prine know. Um, she'll be standing back there. One is called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. Um, we can order them for you if you want to pay us for them. Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. The other is called, um, is called Give Them Grace. The first one is on marriage, and it's particularly targeted to singles. Tim Keller wrote that book on marriage in, in trying to explain the meaning of marriage really to a culture that rejects marriage. Um, he has a, he's a church of about 4,000 singles and about 4,000 or so marrieds, um, and so he addresses those issues quite well in that book, The Meaning of Marriage. So I'd encourage it to everybody. I think it's one of the best books, if not the best book I've read on marriage. There's also another book called Give Them Grace, which is by Elise Fitzpatrick. That is on parenting and on how we bring the gospel to bear on parenting. We're recommending both of those books, and we have them, or we can order them for you. I think it's 25 bucks for both of them. That's shipping and everything included. So let us know if you want to get those afterward. Um, with that said, let me jump into this and, and ask this question. How is your pursuit of a spouse, or how is your marriage, or how is your parenting different from the marriage or the parenting or the pursuit of a spouse that we see among moral unbelievers, or different than we maybe see among Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, or even a good law-keeping Pharisee? How is yours different than theirs? Our contention is, and that's really what we're going after in this series, our contention is that sadly in most cases the Christian gospel has really no bearing on how Christians pursue a spouse. It really has no bearing on how they live in marriage or in how they parent, um, though it should make a tremendous difference in all those things. In fact, I can probably prove that the gospel speaking of those issues is really most likely low priority on the list that most of you have with one simple question. Here it is. How many of you are hoping down deep that we will give you some new principles to communicate with your spouse better or some new principles to get your kids to behave better or some new principles that will help you make the, the best decision in who you marry? I mean, how many of you are down deep hoping for that? See, how many of you have read books or listened to lectures or sought for curriculum that answers those kinds of questions? And in contrast, how many of you have spent the majority of your thoughts about marriage, parenting, and singleness, and or dating, how many of you spend the majority of your thoughts in those areas wondering about how the gospel applies to those things? See, we, why is it that we give so much thought to the how-tos? And why do we give so much thought to the how-tos, to the principles, to the tips? Why do we give so much thought to those things? We do so because we love the law. We, we just do. We're a people who love law. You say, no, no, I don't love law. Yes, you do. You always want to line in the sand. We, we, law seems to make things within our control. Now, you may not like the biblical law, the Ten Commandments, but you like some kind of law, some kind of principles. You want to hear them all the time. If you're anything like me, you're constantly looking for these principles, these laws to make things seem within our control. Because, see, law is something I can sink my teeth into. Law is something that gives me a line in the sand. It gives me boxes to check to make sure I'm doing okay. Law gives me a clear list of things I can accomplish. But listen, here's the thing. Even unbelievers tend to like law. And so do Mormons, and so do Jehovah's Witnesses, and so do Muslims. So what makes your marriage, your dating, your parenting any different than any of theirs? 
our dating and marriages and parenting are not distinctly different because we're so much better at law than those people out there. Do you guys know that? What makes it uniquely Christian? It's not that we are better at law than those people out there. How many of you know people, in fact, I know some, who have better marriages and kids than those who are professing believers? You guys know people like that? I know some. I remember I worked with a guy um, when I was a teacher at South High School a decade plus ago who had a fantastic marriage. He had an incredible marriage, and he still does have a great marriage. Not a believer at all. Great law keeper. Does he keep the law up to God's standards so that he's saved? No. But he, he sure knows how to keep good principles in his marriage. Our dating and marriage and parenting is supposed to be different and distinct. And it's supposed to be different and distinct not because we're so good at law, but because we're gospel people. We're people who get the gospel. So please don't understand, misunderstand me when I talk about, you know, gospel-centered parenting. Because here's what I don't want you to understand. We aren't saying the law is bad, all right? It's not what I'm saying. In fact, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The law can be helpful. The law is to be obeyed. We are saying that the law should not be central. Do you hear that? It shouldn't be central. You don't want to make the servant into the master. For law is an awful master. If law is your master, it only condemns, and it gives you no power to keep it. It just relentlessly points to your failure and continually discourages those whom you apply it to. Try the application of the law in your marriage often. See how well your spouse does with that. It doesn't give them the power to keep it. Try it against your kids. It's going to apply the law to you. It never gives them the power to keep it, does it? So we're going to spend the next 12 weeks helping you understand how grace, specifically grace personified, grace in the person of Jesus, is your master. And how his law is his servant to help us as his people walk with our master. So today I want to break this talk today into three parts briefly. Here, here they are. The, wh one, what's the goal of gospel-centered dating and marriage and parenting? Two, how often, I want to talk about how we often have that goal wrong, how we pervert the goal. And three, I want to talk about how, go, how gospel-centered marriage and dating and parenting is impossible to achieve. It's impossible to achieve how the goal of it, I'm sorry, the goal of gospel-centered marriage and parenting and dating is impossible to achieve apart from the gospel. Apart from the gospel. So what's the goal? What's the goal in Christian dating or Christian marriage or Christian parenting? What's the goal? Well, the goal is the same as the goal of all of life. You know what the goal of all of life is? God's glory. Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism actually summed it up and said, what is the chief end of man? What is the supreme goal, the ultimate thing towards man's life is about? And what do they say? It's to, in, it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to bring Him glory really through joy in Him. And what they're summing up is what Scripture says on this topic. Look with me. At, um, we'll start with the creation at Genesis chapter 1 because I, I want you to see this as God's goal and how it gets perverted and what that perversion ends up looking like. In verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on and he breaks down then how that creation takes place. And what's interesting is he goes through these six days, he repeats a phrase, repeats a few phrases multiple times, but one that I want to focus on is this one that he repeats starting in verse 10. God called the dry, dry land earth 
And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Saw that it was good. He pronounces something about his creation. It's good. Go on in verse 12. He says it again. It brings forth all this fruit, and it says, and at the very end of verse 12, and God saw that it was good. And in verse 18, as he's talking of his creation, again at the very end of verse 18, and God saw that it was good. And in verse 21, as he's coming to the end of verse 21 again, and God saw that it was good. In verse 25, at the very end again, and God saw that it was good. Over and over and over again, God's approval is put upon God's creation. He approves of it. Why? Because the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19.1 The heavens, the skies, the earth talks about His handiwork. Everything about creation tells us about the nature of God. In some way, it reflects who He is. It demonstrates He is glorious and beautiful and majestic. It tells us about Him. That's why it's good. Because it does its job. It talks about the glory of God. What's interesting is not only does creation meant to do this, we as humans are as well as part of that creation. Look at verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Isn't it interesting that God uses this word, he created us in his image. And he repeats that over and over again. God made us to image him. Male and female, he created us to image him. To image him is to reflect his character back to him. It's like we're the mirror of God's glory. We're, we're imprinted in some way with his character and we're reflecting it back to him. We're imaging him. And we're not only reflecting back to him, but out to others. And so we might also call this glorifying God. To glorify God is essentially to reflect his character out to the world and to others. So when we glorify God, we're exalting his character. We're holding him up before the world and before himself. And as the pinnacle of God's creation, human beings are to image him, to reflect his character, to glorify him in the greatest possible way, in a way that the rest of the creation is incapable of doing. And God declares of this after he sees the creation of man in Genesis 1 verse 31. He says this, and God saw everything that it was made, and behold, it was very good. See, that's our purpose. And what we then see happen in Genesis 2 is we suddenly see a narrowing of the creation account. It's as if Moses wants us to understand, okay, now you got the first six days, really the seventh day um, there as well. Now what I want to do is I want to focus in on specifically that sixth day and the creation of man and woman. And I want to give you a fuller accounting of that of that creation of Adam and Eve. And so he goes into that creation and we see something picked up in verse 18 of chapter 2. Listen there, after all of these, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. Verse 18, we see this very interesting statement in chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. What? There's no fall here. No sin. None of that's happened yet. But it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Why? 
Why is that not good? Why is it not good for man to be alone? Because, and I'm going to give you a theological word here, we don't have a Unitarian God, that's why. What do you mean? What, what, what does that have to do with anything? We have a Trinitarian God. What does that mean? Why does that answer the question why it's not good for man to be alone? Because the point is, man cannot reflect the image of God properly, demonstrate his glory properly, unless man is in relationship with other people. Because God is in an eternal relationship with himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing in relationship, and thus man is made to be in relationship. That's also why we're not monks, why we don't go out into the desert and live monastically on the top of a pole by ourselves. Why is that? Because God created us to be in relationships, and sanctification happens within the context of relationships. Holiness, growth of that, happens in the context of the body of Christ. You just think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, right? How many of the self-control, how many of those things can you demonstrate by yourself? I'm super patient with me, right? I have no struggle being patient with myself. You guys follow that? We're, we're meant to be in relationship because God is an eternal relationship and all this was done for his glory. So we know that the purpose of marriage and parenting was for the glory of God. So what happened? The fall happened. The fall happened where the goal became corrupted. In Genesis chapter 3, we, we read about the fact that the serpent comes to Adam and Eve, and basically the serpent's appeal is this. Listen, here, here's what we, I want you to understand. God is, is um, holding something back from you. He's a little bit stingy. I know he said you can eat from any of the trees, but, but why can't you eat from that one? He's, he's sort of holding back from you, isn't he? He knows that tree would be good for you to eat. Look at it. Make you wise. In fact, what God knows is you won't really die from eating that. It'll just make you like God. I.e., here's the issue. Adam and Eve, I know God said it's about his glory, but take some glory for yourselves. Take some for yourselves. And, and that condition goes on. In Romans 1.18, um, Paul starts to deal with that condition that, that has obtained ever since the fall, ever since Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to take some glory for themselves and not give it to God. Paul picks up and not be thankful for what God has given them, but wish they had more. Paul picks up on that idea in Romans 1.18 and following when he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They stand over the truth and they hold it down. As if they're right. That's what that word means, suppress. They're standing over it and pushing it down. They don't want to hear about the truth. And he goes on, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to this honoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, don't you hear this? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. See, that's the exchange that happens in sin. That's the exchange. We no longer worship and serve the creator. We worship and serve the creature. And that creature supremely being ourselves. 
In one act, at the fall, everything became twisted. We began to make the goal of all of our relationships, which marriage and parenting are the primary foundational ones, began to make the goal of all of them into our own glory and happiness. That's how we perverted the goal. No longer became about God's glory, it became about our glory, our happiness. No longer became about glorifying God and enjoying Him. It became about glorifying God and bringing happiness to ourselves. Singles. When you get the goal wrong, everything else falls apart. I'm going to give you an example of how this works for singles. If your primary goal is to find a spouse that will help you to live happily ever after, you will never find the right spouse. Hear that? Married couples, if your primary goal is a happier marriage, you will never achieve it. When people come to me for counseling and I say, what do you want help in? They say, we want a happier marriage. I say, if that's what you want, then we're done because that ain't going to happen. What do you mean? If that's your goal, you will never achieve it and we will explain to you why. Parents, if your primary goal is a happy family or at least kids that behave enough that you feel happy, you will never reach it. Notice that in every case, the goal is self-serving. I want to find someone who makes me happy. I want my marriage to make me happy. I want my children to make me happy. The problem in every case is that we exchange the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature and that being ourselves supremely. So how does this show up? What does the exchange look like in dating and marriage and parenting? Let me give you examples. As a single person in relation to pursuing marriage, what does it end up looking like? Here's one example. I look for compatibility above all else. That's my, how it shows up for a single person. I look for compatibility above all else because I want someone who never causes me discomfort. Right? What if great compatibility, right? You go to eHarmony.com and you can take like 32 areas of compatibility or whatever it is, right? And find the exact right person for you who will never make you uncomfortable. You guys know what I'm talking about? Complete lie, incidentally. But what if, what if great compatibility just means that the other person just serves the idols of your heart really well? What if that's all it means? Then your happiness is just brought about by self-worship, isn't it? All right, guys, I hear guys, I look for low-maintenance women. You guys heard that? Like they're buying a car, right? Low-maintenance woman, she doesn't have a lot of miles, okay? Well, I, listen, I, I don't want, and essentially what they're saying is this, I don't want any woman who costs me anything. I don't want anyone who costs me anything. She's supposed to give me everything I want and make me happy, not cost me something. Or I've heard women, this is the great one for women, they make these lists, especially young women. Older women sort of grow out of it and know that Prince Charming ain't coming, so, but, but young women, tend to, you know, they tend to make these lists of everything they're looking for in a guy. You know what's amazing to me? If you go through their list, most of the qualities are things that will make them quite happy. I want a guy who helps me maximize my worship of me, is essentially what they're saying. If you got a list, ladies, take it out and burn it. Just burn it. No guy's ever going to meet up to it. It's unrealistic. Anyway, all right. Oh, I hear this a lot from singles. I'm looking for the one. You know the one, the elusive one. Where are they in the world? It's like, where's Waldo in dating, right? Where is the one? I want the person God has chosen for me. What if I miss that person and settle for someone else? And by the way, how would I know if I made this error in choice? How would I know if I made it? Well, here's how I would know according to our culture, because I would end up with someone who costs me personally, when I could have been with someone who maximizes my happiness. See, I hear this from people all the time. They're, they're in my office saying, well, 
you know, as they're divorcing, leaving their spouse, well, I met this other person, and they're the one for me. They really fulfill me. My spouse doesn't do that. I must have missed the one. And so God wants me to divorce my spouse and find this person because this person is the one. Because, see, God's primary concern is my self-worship and my own happiness, right? And I want the one. I want to find my soulmate, the person who lets me be me, the person who never changes me, the person who makes me happy and who I don't lose my identity in. What does that even mean? The moment you get married, you change. You know that? You change. There's no such thing as not changing in marriage. It happens the day you married. You went from single to married. You're different now. You're comprehensively different as a person. It's because we've turned marriage into this idyllic state in which two people come together as individuals and sort of retain their individuality, their happiness, their comfort, their self-worship. It's because of that that people are increasingly skeptical as to whether long-term monogamous marriage is really possible. Hear that? It's our idealism that leads to our skepticism. I think marriage should be all this, and a person I find should provide all of this for me. And it's because we think it should be all that, that we end up being skeptical we can ever find it. Because that doesn't exist, folks. It isn't there. Now, I, I want young single people and older single people to be clear. I'm not saying that we should be unwise in choosing a spouse. It's not what I'm saying. I am saying that none of the other stuff matters as much as is this person committed to the gospel. None of it matters as much as that. If they're not committed to the gospel and you're not committed to the gospel, this marriage isn't going to survive anyway. And if it does, it's going to survive on law. It's not going to help you grow in holiness. It's not going to help you grow closer to Christ. It's just going to give you a nice American happy life and you will live that rest of that life. You will die and you will go to hell. But you had a nice marriage had nothing to do with Jesus. And that isn't an option in Christ's kingdom. Christ doesn't say, I can be one of the things on your list. Christ says, as Paul says, when Christ appears, when Christ who is your life appears, he's your whole life. How about as a married person in relation to your spouse? Let me give you some examples how this perversion shows up. My spouse exists to make me happy. When she fails to do so, I'm going to let her know about it. Or am I, you guys do that, right? You let your spouse know about it when they fail to make you happy, don't you? Or I may find someone else who might make me happier. I mean, this marriage thing is a contract. We even have legal documents we attach to them now called prenuptial agreements. Because I don't want to enter into this contract without knowing that we both get to keep our own property. And this is only agreed upon contract so long as we both feel like we're happy. And then we'll dissolve the contract. And most people go to the altar and lie in their vows, don't they? They just lie right there because they have no intention of keeping any of those things. When this spouse ceases to do for me what makes me happy, whether it's their fault or not, I um, will find that it's time for me to find someone else who will fulfill what I demand. Or service, this is another one, service to my spouse is only useful when it's reciprocal. Right? In other words, if the marriage is going, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm only serving my spouse as long as he or she responds in kind. Why should I serve someone who's lazy and ungrateful? Or how about this? My marriage is really my justification or my identity. If the marriage is going well, then I can pat myself on the back as doing well with the Lord. And if the marriage is struggling, then I wonder why the Lord has turned against me. As a parent in relation to your children, how does this perversion show up? Well, one, you could see your children's behavior as a justification of your own glory or as a detriment to your own glory. 
How does that come out? Parenting becomes a task that is primarily concerned with enforcing social mores. Why are you enforcing those social mores? So your children make you look good in public. You can say, I don't, I don't do that. But how often are you embarrassed by or affirmed by how your child's behavior makes you look in front of others? Rather than being concerned with the condition of your child's heart before the Lord. See, when your child misbehaves in a public setting, are you more concerned with how they embarrassed you? Or are you more concerned about how that puts them in their relationship with the Lord and the condition of their heart? Children can be taught to be, put on, be putting on a good show. You guys know that, right? You see your friends and their kids are so well-behaved in public. You have no idea what they're like behind closed doors, incidentally. They've put on a good show. And so you compare yourself to them and say, man, I'm a terrible parent. They're a great parent. Now, maybe their kids are really godly kids and they love Jesus, but you don't even know that. All you're interested in is the show and whether or not your kids match up. You see your children as property for your use. See, they aren't individual people whom God has entrusted to you as a steward for a time. They belong to you. They're yours, and they better recognize, right? And when this becomes your parenting outlook, then here's what happens to your children's behavior. It becomes really an affront when their bad behavior really becomes an affront to your lordship over them rather than a sin against God for which they need to be reconciled to him. Their poor behavior becomes about how they inconvenience you. And thus you become angry, and oftentimes, frankly, your response and anger because of how your kids have inconvenienced you in their bad behavior, rather than your concern being about their relationship with the Lord, it's about you and the fact that they've somehow trumped your lordship. You know what your response is? Oftentimes you respond in ways that are emotionally and sometimes physically abusive. When you use your power over them in anger, to put them in place to keep them from inconveniencing you. That's abuse. You see your children as existing for your happiness. So you become disappointed frequently when they perform in ways that make you unhappy. Again, your concern really isn't about their relationship with God. It's about your own convenience and happiness. You see your children as your justification, as your identity. So every time your children disobey, they're not independent moral agents who make bad decisions, they're just more proof I'm a bad parent, right? Or vice versa, if they make good decisions, more proof I'm a good parent. If you're like my wife, they're more, my kids are proof that she's a bad parent. If you're like me, they're proof that I'm a good parent, right? <laughs> just depends on how you tend to be wired. Again, I'm not concerned about what their behavior says about their relationship with the Lord. I'm concerned about what their behavior says about my relationship with the Lord. So our goal is to glorify God in all this, and we've perverted that goal. But you might say, well, I want to achieve that goal of glorifying God. But here's where the problem gets deeper. You can't. You can't do it. The command to glorify God in all things is a law you cannot keep. Do you hear that? That's depressing news, isn't it? Can't do it. Can you love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? Can, can you? Have you ever done it? Can you be holy as he is holy? Wives, can you submit to your husbands without fail? Can you respect him without condition? Have you? Husbands, can you love your wives as Christ loved the church? Can you live with her in an understanding way? In all times, have you done it? 
Parents, can you discipline your children always in the fear and admonition of the Lord and never for your own end and always do so without ever exasperating them? Have you managed to do that? See, the gospel is necessary to achieve the goal of God's glory in your pursuit of marriage, in your marriage, in your parenting. It's necessary. Why is it necessary? Because you can't glorify God in all things. You can't. We're supposed to do all this for God's glory, not for our own glory, but that's impossible. Thus, we need the gospel, and the gospel provides this because it's the good news about how someone else did it for us. That Jesus came, and he lived perfectly in my place, in your place, for me. He did that. He kept God's law in every point of his law. He kept God's will in every matter. He was tempted in every way to sin as I am, yet without sin. He never actually gave in. God is, or Jesus is perfect in holiness in this regard. Jesus was the husband to his church that I failed to be to my wife. Jesus was submissive to his father in the way many of you wives sub- fail to be submissive to your husbands. The father disciplines his children perfectly, whereas we tend to fail all the time, right? God provided his righteousness for us. In Christ that's where it was provided so that Jesus lovingly and perfectly lived this out in our place and then he went to the cross and he paid the debt for our failure and that's what he did on the cross he paid the debt for our failure and then he rose from the dead why so that you can be forgiven so that you can be counted as righteous so that you can be empowered to then pick yourself up and try again to live for God's glory in the power of the Holy Spirit motivated by the gospel this is what paul means in second corinthians 5 21 when he when he makes the comment so he who knew no sin that that's jesus he knew no sin became sin for us in other words he took our sin on him so that in him we might be the righteousness of god he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness that's the exchange that happens at the cross. That, that's why we need the gospel. Why it's necessary. Jesus is the one who steps in and takes care of all this for us. And, and Paul actually sums up how this gospel is what actually brings God glory in Ephesians 1. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there real briefly. And I'm going to basically end in this passage with a couple of comments. Because what I want you to understand is this passage sets the table for the passage we're going to start dealing with next week, which are these passages about uh, the next two weeks, we're going to set the table for what we come into in Ephesians 5 with husbands, wives, and then Ephesians 6 with parenting as we go through the series. But let's set the table as Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. He said this, Blessed be, verse 3 in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, that's in Christ again, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Now catch this, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
Where is God's glory going to be praised? The glory is grace is going to be praised here through the gospel, through what Jesus did. That's where it's accomplished. And he goes on, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now I want you to see how this plays out because he talks more about the gospel. Now go down to verse 11. In him we have been, that's in Christ, we have been obtained, we have, excuse me, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, Christ accomplishes the glory of God for us, so that we, as he imputes his righteousness, as he credits his righteousness to us, so that we bring glory to God. God is the one who fulfills this in his son. Go on, he says this again, in case you're not getting the point. Paul wants to make sure we get it. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Again, to what? To the praise of his glory. What's it all about? The Father plans our salvation to the praise of His glorious grace. The Son comes and accomplishes our salvation to the praise of His glorious grace. The Holy Spirit then applies our salvation to the praise of His glory. God is the one who brings about His own glory because we have failed to. And He does it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as He applies it to us, we are then those who glorify God because we are in His Son, because we are in Christ as those who believe. We are united to Him. That's why Paul keeps referring to in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ, over and over again. That's the phrase he says more than any other phrase, by the way, in all of his writings, is in him or in Christ. Because it's our union with Christ through faith that brings us to be people that bring glory to God. Because he brings glory to God. That's why the gospel is necessary to glorifying God or to achieving the goal of bringing God glory in our singleness, in our marriage, in our parenting. Thus, the gospel really becomes the relational context. And I want you to get this because this is what we're going to spell out the next several weeks. The gospel becomes the relational context in which we live all of life. Hear that? That's what it becomes. That's what we're spelling out in the series, that the gospel becomes the relational context in which we live out all of life. And if you don't believe the gospel, where you aren't interested in the gospel, and you just want more good principles, then what we're going to cover the next 11 weeks is not for you. I'm not saying we won't talk about principles, but that won't be our main go-to. We're going to go to how does the gospel come about being the relational context in which we live all of life. And this gospel centrality speaks to dating and marriage and parenting in three ways. I just want to list for you, and then we're going to tease them out over the weeks. It speaks to our identity. In other words, the gospel addresses our identity. It reminds us that Jesus is our identity and not our performance as a spouse or a parent. He's our identity, not our performance as a spouse or a parent. Second, it speaks to our motivation. The gospel changes our understanding of marriage and parenting and thus provides the proper motivation for us to pursue marriage, to pursue parenting out of thanksgiving for what God did and what God is doing and not out of obligation to somehow win his approval. And three, it, it, it addresses the issue of our ability. The gospel empowers us, in other words, to be God-glorifying spouses and parents by imparting to us the Holy Spirit and God's word through which real change takes place. Because right? real change doesn't play, take place through the right application of the law. 
All right. I want to sum up with that. And what I want to do is be able to answer, let, answer questions you guys may have because here's what our plan is in week one to lay out why we need to be gospel-centered in our approach, why it's necessary. The goal is God's glory, and it's necessary we have the gospel. As we go through the weeks, we're going to tease all that out. Next week, I'll talk about the means. And then after that, as you see the series falls out, we're going to get specifically into marriage issues and then parenting issues and how the gospel ties back to those. But I want you to be able to ask questions, if you have any, about marriage or parenting or singleness or dating, anything you want to ask, even if it's not specifically related to the gospel, or maybe asking a question and asking how it is related to the gospel. That's fine. We want to give that opportunity. And what we're going to do in coming weeks is, for example, we're going to bring some other people up here to help us address the question. John Stevens is going to be coming up to address some questions. He doesn't fully realize that yet, but it's coming. Um, <laughs> and so we're going to, especially some of the questions people have in a later parenting series with regard to how do I relate to my adult kids? How do I relate to my kids as they go into high school and college? See, I haven't had any kids going to high school and college yet, so I'm not the best guy to answer those questions, so he might. Um, and we'll also have him up for some marriage stuff. So um, any questions you guys have, please please feel free to let me know. If you don't, I'll pray and, and send you packing because I know that the future ones are where the, a lot of the questions are going to start to get stoked because we're going to throw out all kinds of information that you're going to go, okay, now I've got to ask about this. If anybody have anything, let me know. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray to close out this and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you ask any if you have any. Father, I'm thankful, for, I'm thankful for your word and its truth and the fact that the gospel is necessary. And I pray that I pray that we would understand that if our goal is to glorify you, that that can only be done through trusting in your Son. And not in ourselves, not in the way we orient our lives to pursue a spouse, not in the way we orient our lives to, be, to live with a current spouse, not in the ways we orient our lives to, to have children who behave. But Father, that our hope is found in Jesus, that we'd understand that, that you begin to help us tease that out as we go through, that you'd be honored in it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. What's the best way to love your wife as Christ loved the church? <laughs> um, well, actually, Paul says what the answer to that is, right? He says he gave himself up for her. So the best way to live, love your wife as Christ loved the church is to give yourself up for her. That means that um, 1 John 4.10, if you guys are familiar with this, and this is love, not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a propitiation, a sacrifice, a satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. What was God's love? That God was willing at great cost to himself to show kindness to us, right? That's how he showed his love. At great cost to himself, he showed kindness to us. So the best way to love your wife, as Christ loved the church, is, is to show kindness to her at great cost to yourself. That, that means that your whole life is oriented around her, and what's for her benefit, whether it costs you or not, no matter what it costs you. That's a tough calling, by the way, guys. That, that ain't an easy one, just in case you're curious. Um, okay, discipline of children. Is spanking okay if my child bites another child? Um, you probably don't want to spank them in the process of the biting, because that might not go over well. But, it, it, I mean, listen, here's the thing about spanking and and, and, and we will deal more with corrective discipline when we get to that night. But, but let, let me address this really quickly. Spanking in anger is never okay. Never. Never okay. When is it okay to spank in anger? Never. Every time you've ever spanked in anger as a parent, you have sinned. You guys hear that? You've sinned. 
And you should apologize to your kids. You should repent before them and ask for their forgiveness for the way that you approached them. Because you spanked them for your good and not for theirs. Right? So discipline is always for their good. And so if, if your child is disobedient and bringing harm to other children and they're at an appropriate age in which you apply discipline to them, right? Then, then, then you have to sort out how that's going to be done in the context of your household. I recommend that uh, with, with younger children, I don't mean infants, but with younger children, I recommend that you employ good biblical form of spanking. Um, but I'm, I'm gonna be, I want to be clear about that. You don't spank them in public. You don't spank them in front of other people and humiliate them or embarrass them. You don't spank them in anger. You don't spank them in a way that brings harm to them physical harm to them. You don't do any of those things, right? And you don't spank them without explaining to them why they're being spanked, what's going down, praying with them, talking to them about the gospel and the fact their hopes in Christ. Because what do you do when your kid looks at you and says, you say to your kid, you know what? I, I, I'm going to give you an example. This is a great example. It's an older kid. This dad wasn't spanking his kids because he's too old. But he had, he had a, his dad was talking to me. He had a junior high son and he says to me, he goes, you know, he was talking to me one day, and he says, I was talking to my son, and my son was struggling with pornography. And he had looked at pornography when he was sixth grade first, and I caught him, and, and I busted him for it, and then I, I, I sort of shut everything down and put all the filters on the computer and, and, you know, cut it all off, and I thought it was dealt with. And then a couple of years later, I found out he found end-arounds around all that software and was still looking at pornography. I caught him, and he says, I came off, I flew off the handle. I started yelling at him, you need to stop it, this is wrong, this is sin, this is evil, you need to stop right now, this will destroy your life, you got to stop. And he says, and I went, I came unloose, came unglued on my kid. And after I was done yelling at him, he says, my kid looks at me, and he says, dad, I can't, I can't stop. And he said he was crushed. Because of the first time he realized, he, he's in bondage to this sin. It's not a matter of just yelling at him and telling him and spanking him and smacking him and getting him in line. But I've got to take him to the gospel. I have to explain to him the way he can get over this sin. That Jesus took this sin for him. That Jesus was tempted to lust but never did. And that that's his hope. And that Jesus now will empower him by the Holy Spirit if he trusts in him to begin to work his way out of bondage to this sin. And, um, and so I would tell you, even with your little ones, you don't spank them and not talk to them about the gospel. You just don't. You better go back and explain to them who Jesus is because they can't stop their bad behavior. You hear that? Now you might say, well, I can get them to conform to the behaviors I want them to conform to. That's fine, but you've done nothing about their heart getting them to conform. Well, it looks like repentance to me. Well, you don't know. So you've got to bring them back to the gospel again and again and their need for Jesus. The fact that they're sinners, that you're sinners. And by the way, they're not going to understand repentance and confession of sin and dealing with that until you confess sin and repent in front of them for your stuff. Because guess what? You are sinning in front of your kids, right? And you need to repent. Some of the most powerful moments I've seen is when parents have repented in front of their own kids. How does the gospel make dating look different than the world? Well, I think, I think more, more than anything else, it reorients your priorities as to what you're looking for. If I'm dating according to the world, and, and there are lots of things that I could address. I don't, I don't have time to address all of them, but, but I think probably more than anything else, I'm dating according to the world standards. I'm looking for someone to maximize my own happiness. And so I have a list of standards 
that aren't really addressed around what honors God, but they're addressed around what maximizes my happiness. And, and so I think the greatest way the gospel addresses this is it, it reorients what's important to you. So now the most important thing to me isn't that this woman's perfect or this man's perfect, but this woman or this man loves Jesus and understands grace and knows that grace is essential to our relationship. Does that follow? That becomes the most important thing. I saw a video of a woman who married a man, um, and I, I would encourage you guys if you could find this video. I think I saw it on the Desiring God website. Um, but a, a woman who had a, um, a boyfriend, and they both loved Jesus, they both loved the gospel. He had a horrible accident in which he had a brain injury, and so he became incapable of taking care of himself. They weren't married yet. They weren't married yet. They weren't even engaged yet. He became incapable of taking care of himself. She was single. She could have moved on. He was with his parents. He couldn't even speak, really, to her. It was over. Most people would tell her, you know what? You were a good girlfriend. Pray for him. Go find a man who can provide for you. You know what this woman, she married him. She married him and she took care of him. She said it's her joy to serve this man because the gospel leads her to do that and because he knows that she loved Jesus and he knows the relationship they had prior to the, she knows the relationship they had prior to the accident. Blow you away if you watch the video, I'm telling you. will blow you away. Reorient the way you see um, what it is that's central about a spouse. Um, the, um, how should I deal with my spouse when he says he has to change see a change in me before he makes up his mind on whether to continue the marriage. Um, you should bring him to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, let, let me address that. You're, you, you don't continue in, in your marriages are not, you, change is not sort of like, here's, here's the contingency. If you change, then I'll stay with you. If you don't change, then I won't. That isn't how marriage works. Marriage is a covenant. You know how God covenants with us? He covenants with us in a, ma- in a manner which he says, I require of all this stuff with you guys. If you violate it, then I'll break covenant with you. you say, what? And if I violate it, if I violate it, then I'll tear myself to shreds. Genesis 15. What's interesting is that when the covenant with God gets violated, God sends his son to get torn to shreds in our place. Hear that? So that the covenant can be kept. In other words, God keeps the covenant at great personal cost to himself. We throw away covenants like that because we think they're about arrangements about convenience. That's what we think they're about, about making us happy. And so I'll stay with you if you change. In other words, I'll stay with you as long as you do the things that continue to make me happy. When you don't, I'm out. So the reason I'm in this relationship in the first place is because you make me happy. And if you don't, I'll find someone else who will. That is not a good context for change, incidentally. By the way, it motivates no one to real change. So you all know, you want your spouse to change, threatening them isn't the way to get there. Right? God threatens us with the law. How many of us does that cause us to keep the law? Anybody in here keep the law 100% of the time because of the threats that come for not keeping it? Anyone? No. The only thing that motivates you to keep the law at the end of the day is that God came and kept it in your place in Christ. And when you see his grace and you see Christ, you want to be different. And you want to live for him, to please him, not to get his approval, but because he's been a good father. Um, Is it more loving to turn a potential over to singleness to grow in Christ for a time? How long should they be on a sanctifying trajectory before starting a relationship? And in what context should singleness be pursued 
for them. Um, I, I'm not sure if I totally understand the question. Um, I, I think if you're single and you're dating someone, I'm guessing that's the context. You can text me yes. If you're single and you're dating someone and you're wondering if maybe you should break that off. Is that right? Whoever texted me this? For, for the purpose of their sanctification? Um, otherwise, I'm not entirely sure what the, um, the context of that question is, so I, I think I'd have a hard time answering it. Um, I, I would tell you this. If you're single, I, I will say this. If you're single and you're in a, and you're in a bad relationship, a relationship with the, which the other person is not growing in Christ, you're not growing in Christ, you're, you're a hindrance to each other, then, then break that relationship off. Put it away. Move on. Go find someone who is pursuing Christ and marry that person and, pers- and be the kind of person that person wants to marry, right? Someone who's also pursuing Christ. Um, dating, um, just for the purpose of hoping someone comes around, you know, missionary dating, et cetera, it's not, it's not, not helpful. Have people done it successfully? Yes. Do, does anybody ever recommend it? No. Right? I think my wife marrying me was incredibly unwise on her part. I mean, dating me, incidentally, right? right? <laughs> incredibly unwise on her part, because she was a great Christian girl, and I was really new as a Christian, and I think she was being really unwise in dating me. Now, now, God just so happened to bless her with the exception clause, right? <laughs> but <laughs> that doesn't happen in every case, so, <laughs> all right, the, uh, <laughs> You guys understand that that's that's not really that is the exception to the rule it does happen that but but that's not the rule and and proverbial wisdom which will be in some proverbs next week as we deal with the means proverbial wisdom is a general rule it's not always true it's not a promise train up a child in the way he should go when he's older not depart from it is that right in every single case generally that's true is that right in every single is that a promise no it's not a promise and we have to understand that. There's a lot of proverbial things that are generally true. For example, and I'll give you this one example um, just, just, to, just to tweak your mind a little bit. Right? When, when he says that, you know, that if you have a, a mocker or someone who essentially mocks, it, says, it basically says don't, don't deal with a mocker or don't answer a fool or a mocker according to his own folly. You go, okay, well, I won't answer a fool according to his own folly. And then the next phrase, it says answer a fool according to his own folly. Okay, well, which is it? depends on the situation right so you have to apply wisdom and, and that's how wisdom works um, and I would tell you that have I ever seen couples that come together and um, and they come together in very sinful ungodly sort of circumstances and they come together and they both fall in love with Christ and their lives change and and they become a, they have a great marriage sure is that the way that I would recommend you going about it no right no okay um, all right, let me pray, and um, what we'll do is next week, we will talk about the means of gospel-centered marriage and parenting, and then we'll, from there, jump into sort of the nub of it. Um, here's what I want to do as I pray, is I want to remind you to get, to, to order the books if you want to. The meaning of marriage and give them grace, by the way, are both on Kindle, if you just want to order them on Kindle, if you read Kindle or you have an iPad, that's how I read them. Um, you can buy them on there a little more inexpensively, and you can have them tonight, right? So they're both on there. Um, if you want to order them through us, you're welcome to. We would love to be of help to you. Um, but, um, you know, I would, I, would, I would encourage you to um, grab a hold of those books and read them. Because here's what we're trying to do. 
We're not trying to give you all the techniques for perfect marriage and perfect parenting. We will talk about some techniques. We will talk about principles. Those things will happen. But the biggest thing we're trying to do is flip your whole worldview upside down. We want to spend your whole, this whole time flipping your worldview on its head. With regard to every area of singleness, marriage, and parenting, we want to flip it on its head. Um, because we're convinced that most people have no idea what it means to live with grace as your master. We think that most of them want to live with law as their master, even people who profess to be Christians. I got saved by grace, and now I live out my sanctification with law as my master. It's not how it works. And so we want to help you understand what does that mean. So with that said, let me pray. Father, we are thankful for you and for your grace that you have shown to us in your son, Jesus. We pray for this time of teaching that as we go through the various topics that you'd continue to bring us together to hear your word and to hear of how it is that, that you have saved us by grace and that you are sanctifying us by grace and making us holy by grace. That, that grace, that the, really the gospel of grace is the context in which all of our relationships are lived out. That it motivates us, that it's our identity, and that it gives us the ability or the power to carry out what you've called us to. We pray, Father, that you would help us stay faithful to clinging to your son and his cross, that we would all be radically changed by it. We pray for those who missed tonight, who planned to come to the series, that, Father, they would pick right up where we are, and we pray for those here who have friends that they want to invite, Father, that people would come and they would hear the gospel and how it applies to the most important relationships in their lives, and that they would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.